Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I just realized that we are less than two weeks away from our mini tour. This Uh, is blowing my mind. It's crazy. I'm not ready. Kat and I both prepare in different ways. It reminds me of that video that you took of us, or I guess it was a picture of us backstage in our New York show. And I'm going over my material and my paperwork, and you're drinking a beer. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But in this case, you're working on your topics, and I'm more concerned about my wardrobe. I know. At this point. Well, you've got a real vest situation going on. I I do. I I can't blame you. Plus, no hats fit you. My my head's too big. You've got a cabeza like a melon. <laughs> that that joke got lots of laughs when we were in Ecuador. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you want to go to the show, we would love to see you. This is the third time that we've been to Zanies, yeah. but it's been what? Uh, I think the first one was three years ago. It's crazy. Yeah, three years ago. Wow, that's nuts. We love Zanies. Zanies is one of our favorite clubs, certainly. Uh, we're going to be in Huntsville after that the next day, and then in Charlotte, North Carolina. The uh, Nashville show, start, it's going to be on the 29th. Is that right? That's right. Okay, good. I can't <laughs> keep it all straight. I'm too busy uh, shopping for vests. <laughs> online. So um, we really hope to see you there. We've got some special things planned and uh, we're trying to work out. uh, We've had a few requests from people who have been to previous shows and we're Mm going to see how we can uh, better serve you in your live podcast experience. It's going to be a great time. Get your tickets at theboxofoddities.com and we really hope to see you. It'd be a lot of fun. In the meantime, let me weave you a tale. Please do. Let me tell you a story. I wish you would. On the evening of Saturday, October 21st, 1978, a young Australian pilot named Frederick Volantich climbed aboard his Cessna 182L light aircraft to undertake a 125 nautical mile training flight over Bass Strait off the coast of Melbourne. Frederick Volantich and his plane were never seen again. Oh, wow. After nearly 44 years, we still have very little to go on. 
All we know is that something very, very strange happened that evening. Frederick was born on June the 9th, 1958, which would make him 20 years old at the time of his disappearance. He was very young. He was a very young pilot. Uh, He had about 150 total hours of flying time. He held a class four instrument rating, which means that he's he was authorized to fly at night, but only in visual meteorological conditions or VMC, they call it them aviator folk. He was a member of the Royal Australian Air Force Training Corps. His goal was to have a career in aviation. Now, the night he disappeared, he was heading toward King Island. He claimed that he was on his way to pick up some friends. He also told people that he was flying out there to pick up crayfish. Maybe crayfish are his friends. (laughs) That could be. Crayfish can be very friendly, you know, after a couple of drinks. Reports show that he departed from the airport in Moorabbin, At 6.19 local time, at 7.06 p.m. local time, he got on his radio to Melbourne Air Traffic Control. This was the last communication anyone had with Frederick. According to Australia's Department of Transportation's official report, things got very strange. From the report, quote, On the afternoon of October 21st, 1978, Volantich attended the Moorabbin briefing office, obtaining a meteorological briefing, and at 17.23 hours submitted a flight plan for a visual meteorological conditions flight to King Island and return. The cruising altitude nominated in the flight plan was below 5,000 feet, with the estimated travel time of 41 minutes to Cape Otway and 28 minutes from Cape Otway to King Island. The total fuel endurance was shown as 300 minutes. The pilot made no arrangements for aerodome lighting to be illuminated for his arrival at King Island. He advised the briefing officer and the operator's representative that he was uplifting friends at King Island and took four life jackets in the aircraft with him. The aircraft was refueled to capacity at 1810 hours and departed Moorabbin at 1819 hours. After departure, the pilot established two-way radio communication with Flight Service Unit. The pilot reported Cape Otway at 1900 hours, and the next transmission received from the aircraft was at 1906 hours. The official report then contained the transcript of the final radio communication between the tower in Melbourne and Volantich, a conversation that was really strange. And to this day, we still don't know for sure what happened. This is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It's four bright, seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just passed over me at at least 1,000 feet above. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. Delta Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft, it's... Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. Cannot identify it, it has such speed. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the, um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like. It's shiny on the outside. It's just vanished. 
And that was the last anybody heard. And that's actual... That's actual. That's the actual radio transmission from the tower. The official report went on to say, quote, The weather in Cape Otway was clear with a trace of stratocumulus cloud at 5,000 to 7,000 feet, scattered cirrus cloud at 3,000 feet, excellent visibility, light winds. The end of daylight at Cape Otway came at 1918 hours. The alert phase of search and rescue procedures was declared at 1912 hours. And at 1933 hours, when the aircraft did not arrive at King Island, the distress phase was declared and search action was commenced. An intensive air, sea, and land search was continued until October 25th, 1978, but no trace of the aircraft or Frederick was ever found. The reason for the disappearance of the aircraft has not been determined, according again to the official report. According to the AP, eight planes and an Australian Air Force Maritime Reconnaissance jet were dispatched to search for the plane and the missing pilot. They did not find anything. Two days after his disappearance, the newspaper, the Melbourne Age, printed a story about a metallic sound that was heard by flight service personnel when Valentich mentioned that the engine was, quote, roughly idling. Again, from the official report, quote, Department of Transport officials working at flight service said there was a sort of metallic sound over the radio before communication was lost. So what the hell is going on here? It's that monster in the metal dress. <laughs> or that lake and fringe. The official report put forward an interesting idea. Quote, a spokesman said last night it was possible that Valentich was flying the plane upside down and crashed. He may have become disoriented and confused by the reflection from Cape Otway and King Island lighthouses, the spokesman said. The lighthouses may have reflected off particles of cloud. Wouldn't you know if you were upside down, though? Yeah, well, that's my thought. And according to the Herald Wire Service, they published a quote from a veteran aviator whose name is Arthur Shute. And uh, he was at the time the head of an aviation uh, company. He discounted the idea that the pilot was flying upside down. He said, quote, in that half light, the pilot would have known if the aircraft had, starting to had started to turn upside down. The carpets would come off the floor and the butts would fall out of the ashtrays. So you've probably come to the same conclusion that I have. Clearly, it was a UFO encounter. <clears throat> and certainly on the surface, it, it may seem that way. And then there's this, again from the official report, quote, Mr. Valantich's father, Guido, said he hoped his son had been taken by a UFO and had not crashed. The fact that they found no trace of him really verifies, the, this is again a quote from his dad, the fact that UFOs could have been there. Uh, he went on to say that his son used to study UFOs as a hobby, uh, using information that he had received from uh, the Air Force. Quote, he was not the kind of person who would make up stories. Everything had to be very correct and positive for him. According to an article by UPI, quote, Valentich's father said his son had been interested in UFOs for many years and reported sighting one about 10 months before his disappearance. Around the 25th of October, his dad said he believed his son had been, quote, held by people from another world. He said he thought they'd probably bring him back in a week or two. 
Oh. Yeah, that didn't happen, though. And there were other reports from people claiming to have seen UFOs over the water that same night. Now, the official report goes on to say, despite calls from other persons along the coast who claimed to have seen a UFO Saturday night, the transport department was skeptical that a UFO was behind Mr. Valentich's disappearance. Quote, it's funny how all of these people ringing up with UFO reports were calling well after Valentich's disappearance. Quote, it seems people often decide after the event they too saw strange lights. But although we can't take them seriously, we can never discourage such reports when investigating a plane's disappearance. And then UPI reported there was some kind of a, a controversy involving that audio that I played for you. Mm-hmm. They say, this, I, Somebody claimed that it had been edited. It sounded that way to me. They claimed that there was no break in transmission after Volantich said, quote, it is hovering and it is not an aircraft. So they're saying that it was a bit of a cover-up, and that's why it maybe sounded more edited. It's still, it, if you were trying to cover something up, though, why would you leave the audio that was left? Because that just leaves questions, too, and, you know, points toward there being an unidentified flying object. Which, let's keep in mind, UFO always just means unidentified flying object, object from another planetary wait, system. Wait a minute. That begs the question... Could it be? Oh, jeez. In 2013, the Skeptical Inquirer published a report that was authored by James Magaha and Joe Nickel. What? Yeah, that guy again. Remember him? Yes. Magaha is an astronomer and a pilot as well as a retired U.S. Air Force major. He's also the director of the Grasslands Observatory in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, he and Nickel concluded that uh, Valantich had, quote, an inadequate education in aviation. He was twice rejected by the Royal Australian Air Force. They also uncovered that he had failed his commercial uh, aviation test twice. Yeah, but he did pass it eventually. Not, not for commercial aviation. Oh, okay. He also had a couple of citations as well as a warning. One of the citations was for, quote, deliberately flying blindly into a cloud. Um, from their report in the Skeptical Inquirer, quote, But what about the UFO's movements when it was not hovering? It is now clear since we have identified the UFO as probably a conjunction of four celestial lights that it was not the UFO moving in relation to the plane, but rather the opposite. The plane moving in relation to the uh, stationary lights. There is actual evidence from the transcript that this is so. After the UFO has repeatedly seemed to fly over him, Volantich says, what I'm doing right now is orbiting, and that thing is just orbiting on top of me. This points to what was really happening to the poor, inexperienced pilot. Distracted by the UFO, he may have been deceived by the illusion of the tilted horizon. That can happen when the sun has gone down, but still brightens part of the horizon, while, of course, the rest of it gets gradually darker and, and farther away. The imbalance of lighting can cause the horizon to appear tilted so that in compensating by leveling the wings, the pilot inadvertently begins not to orbit, but to spiral downward, at first slowly and then with increased acceleration. So they're claiming that Volantich uh, succumbed to spatial disorientation, much like John F. Kennedy Jr. and his plane began what is aptly termed a graveyard spiral. So... They're saying that he became spatially disoriented. He thought that this object was 
orbiting him. But in reality, he was spiraling downward and he was seeing stationary lights on the ground. Okay, so it's kind of like when you're stopped at a stoplight and the car next to you starts to move ahead very slowly and it, for some reason you think you're rolling backwards? Exactly. Okay, a Very, got it. very similar uh, phenomena. So that's, that's pretty convincing. I'd really like to believe that this was some sort of an alien encounter. No, that was the end of my sentence right there. Um, my, but still, why couldn't they find him? I mean, they never found him. Yeah. Like that's still a mystery. It is a mystery. But I guess at this point, they tend to lean toward pilot error. He was a young, inexperienced guy. Mm-hmm. It was a very strange communication with the tower. Absolutely. But there's a scientific explanation as to why that may have happened. Is that the definite answer? No. We we will probably never know unless we find the wreckage, which nobody has at this point. There was also a theory at one point that he may have faked this to disappear for some reason. And because he was already interested in UFOs, he, I, got, I guess exactly. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, everybody that knew him said that he had no reason to do that. There was absolutely no reason for him to want to disappear. It's interesting that he told some people that he was going to get crayfish or whatever it was and uh, told some people that he was going to meet up with friends. I mean, that's very like, oh no, she went to her sister's house. Yeah, that's exactly Uh, right. Yeah. My source material was the Accident Investigation Summary Report from the Commonwealth of Australia, the AP, UPI, the Melbourne Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the article by James Magaha and Joe Nickel titled The Volantich Disappearance, Another UFO Cold Case Solved in the Skeptical Inquirer. Yeah, and after 44 years or so, you would think that somebody would have found some kind of wreckage or something, but it appears as though he just vanished. And the fact that, I mean, if it was out in the middle of the Indian Ocean somewhere... It's easy to believe that that could happen, but he had filed a flight path. They were tracking him. Mm. They knew where he was, and then he was gone. See, that's the mystery to me, not whether or not there was a UFO there. And I think sometimes that's the thing, is people want answers so badly that they just uh, come up with things. Sure. But like the, uh, the report summary said, you can't discount that possibility. Uh... No, you can't, sweetie. (laughs) Aliens are real. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. 
when I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer and now that thing in the middle today's thing in the middle brought to you by rick and steve thanks y'all um (laughs) it's five things we say today which we owe to shakespeare these are things that shakespeare had written that now are almost cliches in today's language number five in a pickle I didn't know that. That's interesting. Number four, the naked truth is a phrase coined by Shakespeare. Number three could uh, apply to my first story, vanished into thin air. Number two, sent him packing. And number one, makes your hair stand on end. Shakespeare wrote that? I guess so. I heard he also came up with the name Jessica. What? Yeah, it's the word on the street. This email just came in a few minutes ago um, from Logan. I found the show in January 2019 when I was living in my car. On the coldest night I ever spent in my car, it was 12 degrees outside. And that was the night I found your show. I was bundled up in winter coveralls with about five thick comforters. So I was actually fairly warm, all things considered. But I hadn't been living in my car long and I often had trouble sleeping. A friend sent me a link to a podcast that she liked, and I absolutely hated it, but it reminded me that podcasts exist, and there you were in my recommended queue. 
and it looked like it was just my level of weird. I fell in love with the show from episode one, and I've been with you ever since. Mm -hmm. You guys gave me a lifeline in a very dark and sometimes quite literally cold time in my life, even though you didn't know it. And I wanted you to know that I will never be able to express how much your show means to me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for existing. Love you guys. Logan. P.S. I missed the What You Got For Me song. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. We seem to get emails like that in clusters. Another one came in just shortly before that. Kat and Jethro just wanted to send you guys a message to let you know how much your podcast has helped me through some difficult times. I'm still in the 200s, but quickly catching up. My boyfriend works late nights, and oftentimes I have felt alone. But listening to you guys has helped me to not feel quite so alone. You've helped me through many panic attacks, restless nights, and long drives to work. I've also struggled with substance abuse issues in the past, and having your podcast to listen to has helped keep me distracted in some of the harder moments of dealing with those issues. I cannot thank you both enough for all your hard work in keeping the show going and never fail to brighten my day. It's uh, truly amazing how much of a difference you guys make and continue to make in people's lives. Keep being you and keep being weird. Much love from Florida. Mm. Uh, Taryn wrote that. And it. this is... Mm, yep. I, I can't even. That's With the fine. feelings and stuff. You guys are great. And what's amazing is that it's you all that keeps us going. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you, don't, you don't even realize it. And <laughs> yeah, it's really true. Especially the last couple of years with all the bullshit in the yeah. world. It's, yeah. uh, it's, been, it's been tough on all of us. And... Uh, You've really helped us through it, too. So thanks. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know what the curator has in common with a serial killer? Damned right you don't. This is The Box of Oddities. You got something for me, girl? Yes. I want to start with a content warning. Just about everything that's bad (laughs) will come up uh, during this, oh. so just prepare yourself, Sweet. and um, yeah, 
I was going through looking for a specific topic that had come up in a previous episode. Somebody had reached out and asked about, when did you guys talk about this? And so I was searching through our episodes and I came across box 246, Babylonian Abalone. And uh, in it, we talked about folly ado or shared psychosis. And you were telling a story, and I said, you know what that reminds me of is the Papin sisters. And I'll... I almost did that that topic today. No. I did. Yeah, I put it in my queue. Now I, now Wait, I have to take it out. Papin. I always thought it was Papin. Oh, jeez. I think it's Papin. Okay, whatever. Because it's French. It's French. Well, I'm glad you didn't do (laughs) this story. I can't believe we. this is the 416th episode. Well, yeah, it was almost two years ago that I was like, hey, this reminds me of the Papine sisters, and I'll talk about that coming up. And yeah, it took me two years to get (laughs) to it. (laughs) It's not important. Here we are. Okay. And again, content warning. The details are a little unclear about parts of this story, but most of the sources that I pulled from claim that it happened like this. On the evening of Thursday, February 2nd, 1933, René Lancelin was supposed to meet his wife and daughter at a dinner party at the home of a family friend. When they didn't arrive, he was concerned, and he went back to their home. Something seemed off about the Le Mans mansion. He reported that the mansion had all the lights turned off, despite the fact that it was dark. And even if his family wasn't home, his live-in help, Christine and Leah Papine, should have been. Renee tried to get in, but all of the doors and windows were locked from the inside. Hmm. Mr. Lancelin contacted police immediately, and they were able to make their way in after climbing over a garden wall. Inside the home, according to one of the crime scene analysts, was, quote, a blood orgy. The Papine sisters had worked for the Lancelins for six years. Christine had been hired first and served as the family cook. After a few months of service, the family hired her younger sister, Leah, to clean the house. The sisters were dedicated to their work, and outside of church service every week, the two preferred their own company over that of others. Each day, they had a two-hour break after lunch, but instead of going out to enjoy the day, they stayed alone in their bedroom. The girls were two of three siblings, and even though they were born six years apart, they had always been very close. A rough childhood may have made this even more the case. Their parents, Gustave and Clement, were married in October 1901 when they discovered that they were pregnant with the girl's older sister, Amelia. The marriage was not a happy one, and there were rumors that dad was abusive and an alcoholic and that mom was cold and having an affair. Mm, That's a recipe for disaster. For sure. Their relationship became progressively more volatile. When Christine was born in 1905, and even more so when Leah was born six years later. When Amelia was nine or 10 years old, she was sent to the Balm Pasture Catholic Orphanage. It was alleged that Gustav had raped her, and so she was sent away. Good God. Soon after Christine was born, the parents gave her to her father's sister. Christine remained with her aunt for seven years until she was placed in a Catholic orphanage as well. 
These were the days when you could just give your kids away. Yeah. Nice. From infancy, Leah grew up with her mother's brother until he died. And then she went into a religious orphanage until she was 15. The parents still did maintain control of their children's lives, though, even though they were living at these orphanages, which is confusing to me. I don't know. Um, And the time that they did spend with their parents was abusive. There was emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Clément eventually divorced Gustave, not because they were in a terrible relationship and he was abusive and he was an alcoholic and she was abusive and she was in love with someone else, but because, allegedly, she was jealous of the attention Gustave gave to the girls. That is so messed up. It's so beyond upsetting. Now, the oldest, Amelia, had joined the convent, and as far as I can tell, she lived her life out there, uh, having little contact with her family. And eventually, Christine and Leah were hired as maids. In 1926, Christine and Leah found live-in positions with the Lancelons. From the outside, it seemed like a pretty good gig. Uh, they were provided with food and housing and fair pay. But the situation, as so often is the case, was not so great on closer inspection. The sisters worked about 14 hours a day with a half day off each week. Holy crap. They were given orders by Mrs. Lancelot only, and that was usually communicated through written directions. So even though they were there and they were part of what was going on, they probably felt isolated. Incredibly isolated. And once again... Um, not getting the attention from Mm. the older people in the household that they should have been given, and certainly not any positive attention. The missus of the house, Leone, was a woman that demanded perfection. She routinely performed white glove tests on furniture to confirm that everything had been cleaned as it should have been. It was reported that she would pinch the girls and subject them to small forms of abuse when they didn't do exactly as she asked. Mm. They were to do as instructed and to interfere with the family as little as possible. This sounds like a fun gig. Yeah. The Papin sisters were ignored as humans. Even after years of employment, the elitism extended as far as the woman having never spoken to René Lancelot in the years that they worked there. Wow. So back to February 2nd, 1933. Leone and the Lancelot's adult daughter, Genevieve, had gone out shopping before they went to meet Mr. Lancelot for the dinner party, while the Papin sisters did their housework and ran errands. And the errands included picking up the family's iron that had broken earlier that week from a local repair shop. A heavy, blunt object. (laughs) Okay. Wait, no. I think I know where this is going. No. After picking up the machine, the sisters plugged in the still faulty iron, and that led to an electrical blowout. Okay. When Leone and Genevieve stopped by on their way to dinner, assuming to drop off their shopping, Christine informed the missus that the iron had broken again. Leone was irate and began attacking the sisters. At the top of the stairs on the first floor landing, Christine snapped. Christine smashed a pewter jug onto the mother's head, Mm. which led Genevieve to come to her mother's defense. She lunged at Genevieve. Christine said, Seeing that Mrs. Lancelot was going to throw herself on me, I jumped on her face and I tore her eyes off with my fingers. Holy crap. During this time, my sister Leah jumped on Mrs. Lancelot and also tore off her eyes. 
So it was like one eye each? It was the daughter's eyes and the mother's oh, eyes. Oh, I see. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of pent-up rage. Yeah. Yeah. They came by it honestly. Yeah, they did. Yeah. When they did that, Christine said, they laid down or squatted on the spot. I then rushed to the kitchen and went to get a hammer and a kitchen knife. With both women now blind, because their eyes had been ripped out, the sisters gathered makeshift weapons to beat the women to death. Oh, my God. The attack lasted somewhere between 30 minutes and two hours. The sisters stabbed the women beyond the point of recognition, cutting up their faces, their chests, their thighs, and their genitals. When police arrived, they found Renee's family in this unimaginable state. Teeth had scattered about the room. One of Genevieve's eyes laid on the top stair. Investigators found the other eye under her body. This is rough. Yeah, I mean, I I told you. Yeah, you did. Fair warning for sure. Leone's eyes were found within her scarf that was still around her neck. As the police searched the home, Renee was sure that they would find his live-in help, Christine and Leah, dead as well. But when investigators ascended to the upper level where their maid's room was, the door was locked. Police were eventually able to get it open, and they found the girls in bed together with their robes on, though some sources say that they were nude. Next to the bed lay a bloody hammer with bits of hair still stuck to it. Ooh. Police asked them what had happened, and the sisters immediately confessed. They claimed it was self-defense, as Christine simply said, it was her or us. So they were taken into custody and sent to different prisons. Their separation, though, was distressing for both of them. They were so codependent that Christine suffered a breakdown and tried to gouge her own eyes out. Oh, my God. This is horrific. Yeah. There were those who believed that the girls had rebelled against their mean-spirited masters, and that reflected on the poor conditions under which the people worked as servants. This became more of a social situational issue than a murder, considering that the maids worked 14-hour days with only a half day off a week. Some believed that this was a result of exploitation of the workers. There were those in the city who even idolized the women, feeling that they had made an example of their elitist employers. Wow. Now, the defense argued that the sisters were temporarily insane during the time of the murder. Mm -hmm. They cited family, a cousin who had died in an asylum, a grandfather prone to fits of violence, and an uncle who had taken his own life as evidence of a hereditary disposition toward insanity. In addition to the horrible conditions and abuse that they were subjected to from the day they were born. Exactly. And psychological experts later argued that the Papine sisters suffered folie or shared psychosis. After the trial, jurors took 40 minutes to determine that the Papine sisters were indeed guilty of the crime that they had been accused of, and that it was Christine who was the mastermind, and that Leah had no personality of her own, that she became an extension of her older sister. Hmm. So Leah was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Christine was initially sentenced to death at the guillotine, 
but that was later commuted to life imprisonment. It really didn't matter, though, because Christine did not handle their separation well, she didn't handle jail well, and she ended up refusing food and succumbing to starvation in 1937. Wow. Leah only served eight years of her 10-year prison sentence. And in 1941, she became a free woman. She lived with her mother. What? I know. In France under an assumed name and worked as a housekeeper in a hotel. And uh, it was alleged that she died in 1981. Interestingly, though, there was a French filmmaker, Claude Ventura, who made a documentary called In Search of the Papine Sisters, and he claims that Leah did not die in 1981 and that he found her alive in hospice in France and that that Leah died in 2001. So that would have made her how old? About 100. Good God. Yeah. But... um, What's your secret to longevity? Beating my employer with a hammer? Murder. Murder. But uh, yeah, unclear if that's actually what happened or if she had actually passed in 1981. I cannot imagine allowing a woman in that state to live with her mom, first of all. Yeah, and number um, two, uh, work as a housekeeper at a hotel. Right. Well, yeah. So uh, that is the story of the Papine sisters and the folie du that led to a crime that is still, to this day, one of the most horrific ever seen in this area. Folie du to me, sounds like a delicious gourmet French meal. mm I'll have the folly ado. I'll have crepes with folly ado, please. Well, that's a fine folly ado. All right, that's that's enough. Sorry, that sucked. So, well, it was fascinating. I got most of my information from Murderpedia, from All That's Interesting, Vocal.media, Historic My Series, History 101. Also, I'm terribly sorry to anyone who speaks French and had to listen to this. Yeah, well, I think that's a standing apology. No matter where our stories come from, we end up butchering the native language. Even English. Mostly. <laughs> Mostly English. <laughs> well, we'll be speaking Nashvillian in less than two weeks. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, and you can come help us pronounce local um, Nashvillean terminology by joining us at Zanies on the <laughs> 29th of this month. Uh, then, of course, we're going to be the next night in Huntsville and then the following night in Charlotte, North Carolina. All live shows. Tickets are available to all of those performances. Oh. And, and I use performance in a very loose term. Yeah, absolutely. It's more of a gathering. We're also going to be able to spend a couple of days in Charlotte. So um, if you're tootling about the city after the show, we might see you. That would be fun. Get your tickets at theboxofoddities.com and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected 
we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.